Hello, and welcome to the Healed Podcast, the place where we can talk about all things food, body, and mind from an anti-diet and weight-inclusive lens. My name is Marie-Pierre, or you can call me Marie, and I am your host. I'm a registered dietitian with a background in psychology, and I specialize in food relationship and body image. And I am the founder and CEO of The Balance Practice, a treatment center for eating disorder and disordered eating. Every week on the podcast, you will hear from myself, the team at The Balance practice and other providers who have dedicated their careers in supporting folks to have better relationship with food and their bodies. On this podcast, we aim to provide a safe space to have these deep and juicy conversations regarding eating disorder, disordered eating recovery, health, relationship, body image, and honestly, anything we believe will support you in living your big, beautiful life. We believe in the power of healing, and hopefully this podcast will be a great addition to your toolbox in your healing journey. Thank you for tuning in today, and let's get to the podcast. Hey friends, happy January. I hope that you are doing great. Welcome to 2024. Actually, welcome. We already had podcasts this year, um, but I hope that we are doing great. Today, I want to talk and I have an amazing guest on the podcast and we are going to be talking about Ozempic and semaglutide drugs. And before we get into today's podcast episode and before I introduce our guest, I just wanted to do a few trigger warnings. In this podcast, we will be talking about grief and loss. And we also talk about weight loss and we talk about this weight loss drug and the side effects. So I wanted to provide a trigger warning and a moment for you to check in with yourself for one, do we have capacity today to talk about this? And do I have the emotional capacity to? Two, if you are someone who is currently utilizing this drug, we are talking about the risk about with this drug long-term and short-term and the side effects. And I can imagine that these may be things that are hard to hear, especially if we maybe didn't have that information when we started. So I do want to offer this disclaimer that we are going to go through, you know, the, the latest research on this drug and the risk of taking it, especially when it comes to our relationship with food and our body. So I do invite you to check in, make sure that we are in a right space to listen to this. Um, and if we are, this is such a good conversation. I think one of the things I often say is that I wish I was given informed consent when I did my first diet. When I started dieting, I had no clue that when I was at risk of doping and eating disorder, I did not know like all of the risks that I was you know, engaging in. I did not know the consequences of dieting. I did not understand it. No one told me. And it's always one thing where I'm like, you know, I think everybody gets to choose what they want to do. And we need to be informed. We need to know, right? We need to have all the information so you can make that decision. And I'm hoping that this podcast maybe provides that for you, the information for you to feel more informed around this drug and what happens to the body and how it impacts and the, the risk of it, especially from my angle, and Catherine's angle that you're going to get to meet today. We work with folks with eating disorder and disordered eating. And the fact that it is something that puts us at risk of developing an eating disorder is a massive, massive risk factor, right? Eating disorders are chronic mental health illness. And, you know, working in treatment of ED, like it is, it is extremely difficult. And if it's something that we can limit the risk of, 
and create more protections around, I think it's extremely important to explore. So on that note, today we're going to be talking about Ozempic and the semaglutide drugs and the families and how they came to be and what they are, how they work in the body, the, the benefits, the risk, and all of the things. And I'm really excited today because I got to connect with Catherine, who is a Seattle-based eating disorder registered dietitian and the founder of Brave Space Nutrition. Today was actually the first time I met her, but I absolutely love her. We definitely vibe and have very similar approaches to care. So at Brave Space Nutrition, Catherine and her team help people heal their relationship with food and their body and help them get away from perfectionist fear and shame. She works with women to help them stress less about food, stop hating their bodies, and learn how to reclaim their life. She specializes in women's health, disordered eating, eating disorders, and body image healing. So she does individual coaching as well as business coaching from a weight-inclusive lens. So I will put all of her links in the show notes so you guys can check her out. And I hope that you're really going to love this episode as much as I did. Hey, Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Marie-Pierre. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy you're here too. I'm happy that we get to connect and meet on the podcast and then talk about this topic that has been, I don't know, getting a lot of internet (laughs) focus in the last while. Yeah, you can't go on social media, it seems like, or on the internet these days without hearing about this topic, it seems Honestly, honestly. So I think it's going to be a really, really good one. Uh, But before we get into it, I'd love to learn more about you, who you are, what you do, and then your origin story. So what got you to do the work that you do today? Yeah. So my name is Catherine Metzlar. I am a registered dietitian here in the US. I am a certified intuitive eating counselor, and I specialize in eating disorders, disordered eating, and body image concerns. So I help people to stress less about food, create peace with their bodies, and hopefully live their lives with more presence, more abundance, more freedom, because so many struggles when it comes to our relationship with food and our relationship with our body, I believe really take life from us. I also own Brave Space Nutrition, which is a private group practice here in the U.S., but we are 100% virtual. And so we see clients from many different places all over the U.S. and the world. And so me and the other clinicians at Brave Space Nutrition also support folks in doing exactly what I do as well. My origin story is a winding one as it goes with a lot of people. For me, I grew up in what I consider to be a pretty food positive household. My mom, because she was put on a diet at such a young age, I think it was around seven or eight, she really wanted me to have a different kind of relationship with food. She wanted the house to be different. She was just going on instinct. There wasn't as much access to, you know, the internet. I don't know when it came about <laughs> in her age, but she didn't have as, uh, any access to information about how to do things differently. So she was just doing her best, but we always had access. I always had access to all kinds of food, a variety of foods. I played sports as well, which I know can go either direction when you're younger. But for me, there was a lot of encouragement of eating eating and eating regularly and not restricting food. And so I felt largely like I was protected from a lot of things that I have heard from my clients and just other people in my life in terms of dieting and restricting at a young age in, for example, high school and before that. Now, 
What I like to say, though, is that just because my mom was doing all of these things, for example, and she had a big impact on me because I largely grew up with her, she was still actively dieting my whole life. And she was on various diets and she would restrict certain foods and food groups. And also all of the women in my family were dieting too. And also (laughs) I existed in the culture that we exist in. So I was being exposed to all kinds of things. So it's like, I like to think about it conceptually as like this stage was being set, but I wasn't aware of it. Kind of like when you go to a show, you sit down, the curtain goes up and everything looks amazing, right? Like it's all set up, not to say that dieting is amazing. I didn't, I don't want to make that analogy, but rather the stage was being set and all I had to do was walk on it essentially when the, when the time came, which was when I went to college, I experienced some body changes and my immediate instinct was to go on a diet because that's what, you know, essentially was modeled for me. This is what you do when your body changes in shape and size you go on a diet. Mm -hmm. And that's really what started my own disordered eating that then led to an eating disorder later. It started off as engaging in a particular diet during that time. I experienced some weight loss and then some weight gain. I was engaging in some purging behaviors. I was engaging in over-exercising. There was just a combination of things. And as it goes with disordered eating and eating disorders, one thing can lead to another kind of ebbs and flows. And depending on where you caught me, I might have received a different kind of diagnosis. And then fast forward many years later, I started to get really focused, hyper-focused on the health of things. There was a huge wave. I think this was like 2011, maybe of healthism on the internet. I thought Google was gospel. If anyone said that research supported it, I was like, yes, that is, that is what I'm going to follow. And food took up a lot of my headspace. The health of things took up a lot of headspace and um, it became all consuming, but it was really tough because then I started being looked to as an expert. This is long before I went to get my graduate degree, um, my master's of science, and it started to feel good. And I was like, okay, I need to go to graduate school for this. I love it so much. It takes up so much of my time and so much of my headspace. This must mean what I need to study. Yeah. Turns out I had an eating disorder, which is common when we're stuck in it, an eating disorder called orthorexia, which is a, some people describe it as like an, a, an obsession or a kind of focus on on the the health of the body, right? The emphasis isn't on changing necessarily one's body shape and size, although that could be part of it. It's really just a fear of foods and ingredients and harm to the body that kind of Mm -hmm. drives orthorexia. So then I go to grad school and I'm like, I just need to get this stamp of approval. I already know all the things. I am an expert. I wasn't, but that was my belief. (laughs) My ED told told me I was an expert. Yeah, 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 exactly. My ED (laughs) told me I was an expert. So, you know, I just need this master's and then look, I'm going to be unstoppable. Well, Things didn't, that that wasn't quite what happened, thank goodness, because in graduate school was the first time where I was asked to not only challenge my beliefs, but also if I found something or said that I had a belief in something or something was true, I needed to support it with research. So we had to learn how to read research as part of what happens in graduate school. And then everything started to fall apart. 
because then I was able to see, oh, this person said that the research supported it. And then I'd look at the research study and be like, wait, no, it doesn't. That's not what happened at all. Or this was some small group of people in Norway of like 10 men studying, you know, whatever it might be. And so everything started to unravel. And I also started to learn about the benefits of different foods, of different food groups. And so that's around the time that I got exposed to, I didn't, I didn't even know the variety of different kinds of eating disorders, the way that they could show up. We had a guest speaker. And that's when I was like, oh, something is not right. I didn't know exactly what it was. Then sought out the care of a therapist during that time, started doing my own recovery, also started working with a dietitian. And then that led me to, as I, everything slowly, slowly, that's important to emphasize. It's not like this happens all at once. It takes, unfortunately, a long time. And little by little began my own healing and little by little also started to change the way that I saw food, the way that I saw bodies, including how I wanted to work with other people in terms of their relationship to food and their relationship to their body. But I wasn't completely there in terms of where I am now with Brave Space Nutrition, which is I worked for a health company, quote unquote health company, after I finished graduate school where we did a lot of coaching. And I'm really grateful for that opportunity because in working with people there on the phone coaching, I realized that actually what a lot of people weren't needing was more education, more information. I do think that there's a lot of need for the dissemination of information, especially with myths and disinformation online, as well as how do we quiet the noise? Because there's folks, for example, when they come in to work with me, usually have a whole stack of beliefs and rules and things. That's important. But once we do that, where I noticed people feeling most stuck was with their relationship with food and within their relationship with their body. They didn't need me to tell them you need to eat this, you don't need to eat this, etc. I realized too, I couldn't keep practicing in that way. I didn't want a health coach. It, it was unethical for my own values as a dietitian and a person to encourage weight loss, which was part of the expectation with this company. And I said, okay, I'm out of here. See you later. I'm going to go start my own business, Brave Space Nutrition. And that's what led me to creating my business now. I love your story so much. Thank you so much for just opening up and sharing with with everyone. It's so wild how like pervasive diet culture is. And I like as you were talking about like your mom doing all the right things, like my initial thought was like, man, like I'm low-key jealous. <laughs> but then it's like, well, even then, right? Like diet culture is so pervasive. And I think it's really a good, like almost even reminder of like what we say to others versus what we do for ourselves has a huge, huge, huge impact. So even like mm-hmm. if your mom was very positive with you, her engaging in diet culture still had an impact. Absolutely. I mean, it's tragic. There's a lot of sadness. My mom died five years ago, just for context, because I feel like it's important. And I have very few pictures of her. I don't really have many videos because my mom spent the entirety of her life feeling terrible about her body. She wasn't a larger body. And it just came from from everywhere in her life. And so she would hide. And I know that we talk about this conceptually, like, oh, yeah, you know, and, and I have clients for whom are like, I want to be in pictures so that my kids can have it. But it is real. And it's heartbreaking when you are a child or someone in your life that you love uh, dies, and you don't have even any pictures of them, because there was so much 
fear and pain. Like I have a lot of empathy for her. And also I'm just like, oh, I wish that I had more memories of us in our life. And so I just think it really highlights how 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 much life it steals from us and also just how much harm it causes because another story for another day, but I think a lot of things were missed at the doctors because of her body shape and size and they should have done testing. And I think they might have caught the cancer a little bit earlier if I'm completely honest, but because of weight stigma, because of anti-fatness, the oftentimes people will go to the doctor, for example, and are just told to lose weight or to take a medication like the ones that we're going to talk about today, instead of saying, let me ask some more questions and get to the bottom of what could be going on. So yes, I think my mom was trying her best. I am so grateful for what she did. And I don't think she fully knew that despite all of her efforts, what she was doing and modeling mm-hmm. also had a big impact on on me and then what I ended up doing later because it was just that was the default you know you just yeah. your body changes you gain weight this is what you do yeah absolutely and I'm so sorry for your loss and it's so fucking disheartening like diet culture fucking sucks like I mm-hmm. and I think you're right like we say it and we like know it and then we experience these things that you're like it steals moments experiences memories from us like the impact is so massive like the mm-hmm. fact that it continues to exist continues to blow my mind I'm like it's the only business that can do this and not get lawsuits and just like fucking move on with their day and like sit on the beach with their millions you know what I mean like it's wild it's wild Mm -hmm. yeah no regulation well thank you for sharing your story with us I really really appreciate it and if it's okay we're gonna move into our topic of the day. So we wanted to talk about Ozempic and semaglutide drugs. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Every time I pronounce a new word, I'm like, is my French like fucking it up or am I okay? They're all made up anyway. These are all made up words. It's so, all made up, so I can say yeah. all I want. Okay. <laughs> I love that. I love that for myself. Um, but yeah, so we want to talk about Ozempic because Ozempic in 2023, it like blew out of proportion. I think I know we've talked a little bit before we press record. Like I have a ton of clients who bring it up and ask questions I know that you do too like when I present to like doctors offices and provide training like it's always the question like but what about Ozempic so let's dive deep on this today so can we just start by talking about like what is this drug yeah so Ozempic Wagovi and some other drugs fall under the category of what's called GLP-1 agonists no one needs to remember this name but just in case people hear this in the ether if GLP-1 stands for glucagon like peptide one. And they essentially, well, at least in the US, I'll speak to that. I'm not entirely sure in obviously when uh, the, the history in Canada, but they were approved in 2018 in the US by the FDA for the management of diabetes. And so one of the first ones that was approved was the drug Ozempic. Some of your guests may have heard of also Wagovi. So this is the same drug. It's just that Ozempic is for the treatment of diabetes. Wagovi is prescribed for weight loss. And the difference is the dosage. It's a much much higher dosage for Wagovi in comparison to Ozempic. Now, semaglutide or semaglutide drugs under this category mimic GLP-1, which is a hormone that's released essentially after you eat, right? It helps us to feel full. It regulates satiety. It regulates insulin production. And what they basically did, and the history of this is really interesting, but they found a way to chemically 
create in a lab this GLP-1 that's released after we eat and to essentially make it into a medication that you inject. And then it hangs out for a little bit longer. So GLP-1 after we eat goes away pretty quickly. And the medication essentially allows this to stay around longer. Semaglutides in particular, in the context of diabetes, which I think is a really important thing that you'll hear me emphasize a lot, have been quite effective, at least from what we've seen so far. This pretty new medication. There's, And I think that that's also another important part of this. We don't have long-term research yet. We're still finding out a lot as we go along. But Ozempic is often prescribed when other drugs aren't effective in the context of diabetes management. So at least here in the US, we'll try other drugs to see if they work. And then if not, usually it's prescribed in addition to or instead of uh, some of the other drugs that we might see for diabetes management. The reason why this ended up leading to it being a prescription for weight loss is because when they were doing the clinical trials, they started to see some body changes with people. And because of the culture and world that we exist in, they thought, oh, well, why don't we see if this is also effective for changing people's body shape and size? And what's interesting is that we see what we see in the clinical trials are different from what we're seeing in trials kind of out in the world. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. But in this class of drugs, what it does essentially is is slowing gastric emptying. So it keeps food around for longer after we're eating. It's signaling to the body that we are full and full for longer. And then it helps to increase the production of insulin, which insulin is, I like to say, is like the key that opens up opens up our cell to get the glucose in. And so, you know, for someone that is diabetic, this is actually really helpful because they might be having challenges with their insulin production, for example. The last thing that it does is that it inhibits something called glucagon, which is another hormone that's released that essentially just taps into our liver and it allows our liver to release glucose as well. And so there's a lot of different, what we say in science, mechanisms of action with this specific drug. The approval of it for weight loss is the one that is much newer, and there's a lot of concerns and questions and things that we're still learning about this drug. Mm, thank you for like breaking down the science behind it. Like, I feel like I've learned a lot <laughs> just by listening to you in this moment. Um, Because it's so cool to kind of understand like how it actually works on the body. And I think something you've named that like I just want to continue to highlight is that it's pretty wild that it started for diabetes management, which seems to be productive. And then yet like we see weight loss and we're like, cool, how do we monetize that? Like, how do we like make this a thing now? And it just continues to like kind of fuel this idea that the the body's a problem. And now we found this new solution. Yeah, it's just it's wild. Yes. And interestingly, as soon as it was approved for weight loss, both Wagovi and Nozempic went into shortage, which is a huge problem for people with diabetes, as you can imagine. And they're still in shortage as right now, currently, they're still in shortage. And the interesting thing, at least in the US, I hope that this doesn't happen in Canada because what I'm about to say is I, I don't think it's great, is that when drugs go into shortage, what the FDA does here in the US is approve production of drugs quickly so that people can get more access to them. But that means that now all these companies are popping up, what they're called compounding pharmacies, mm-hmm. popping up without having to do clinical trials and are selling this medication. And people, you know, I've run into people and talking about this and they're like, I don't hear of anybody doing that. Oh, well, guess who bought a compounding pharmacy? Weight Watchers. 
and other companies like that and their stock went up pretty significantly after they bought it. So when you see if people see commercials or if they see it online of like get Ozempic for $99 a month or 300, I don't know how much they're advertising it for. That's not Ozempic and Wagovi. Those are compounding pharmacies that have popped up that don't have the patent, by the way, to um, because Novo Nordics, the company that produces Ozempic and Wagovi, they've patented the drug. So they don't even have it. So it might be a watered down version. It might, we don't even know what are in these drugs. And so that's another huge issue. This podcast is brought to you by The Balance Practice. The Balance Practice is a treatment center for eating disorder and disordered eating. We are a registered dietitian, social worker, and therapist who specialize in eating disorder care for teenagers and adults across Ontario. If your relationship with food or your relationship with your body is impacting your life quality, we are here to help. Don't hesitate to reach out to our team at www.thebalancepractice.com to get more information and start your recovery today. All right, let's get back to the episode. That's a huge issue. That's a huge issue. Like, I didn't even know that the states of that. I don't know how it works in Canada, but after this podcast episode, I will look into it because now I'm like really curious on like, how would it work here? But that's really problematic, right? Like one, like not actually knowing what we are taking is just so huge. But then when we see companies like Weight Watchers, like investing in this, it's just Mm-hmm. I feel like it's like yeah. giving me a moment to like process this information where I'm like, oh no, like no, 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 no. Why are we here? What is happening? Yeah, capitalizing on this, this what's considered or is being called a weight loss drug, even though yeah. as you talked about a moment ago, it's largely for diabetes. Yeah, and I want to make a sidetrack note here because I'm just like picturing someone who is like maybe listening to this and maybe you decided to do Ozempic. Like you are not the issue, you know, like mm-hmm. us designing a weight loss, like as like, you know, humans on planet earth makes sense right based on the society that we're in so this is not like a shame game on people who are taking it but it's more kind of like looking at the bigger issue with ozempic and how it happens to be and what happens to the body and also like how people are sold ozempic and what what they're like being told by their physicians or providers like that is kind of like more what we're exploring and so just like removing the shame that if you have made that decision for yourself we have body autonomy and that's okay and like we're looking at the bigger problem Yeah, absolutely. I am so glad you said that because it's being prescribed pretty loosely. And this is just what I've seen kind of out in the world, also in talking to my clients for whom their doctors are starting to prescribe it. I think that we need to move away from generally blaming the individual, especially if someone is in a larger body for the decisions that they are making about their own care and well-being. I fundamentally believe in body sovereignty Mm -hmm. and the choice to do what we want with our own bodies, which means that as a dietitian and as a health practitioner, I want people to have informed consent. My intention in talking about these drugs is not to say it's good or it's bad or you should or you shouldn't, only to say, hey, this is what we know so far. This is the information. And here, here's, I'm going to give you as much information as I can, and you can make an informed decision from that place. But that's not what's happening. And they're not doing, by the way, any screening for disordered eating or eating disorders, which is another problem that I... Huge problem. Yeah. It's not, it's not ethical. Like, it's just not, it's just not great. So I'm curious, like, when we think about, like, what are the most, like, the drugs who are prescribed, like, now, like, is Ozempic, like, the most prescribed one? 
Because that's the one we hear most, right? Or is it kind of like a mix of all the things? Yeah, it seems like that's uh, currently the most prescribed one. Ozempic and then, you know, Wagovi, same drug, just different dosage. Here in the U.S., so the difference is that Ozempic is a little bit cheaper than Wagovi. Wagovi is more expensive. So out-of-pocket is about $900 for Ozempic per month. For Wagovi, it's about $1,300 per month, mm-hmm. which, and then it's not approved for the prescription of weight loss, usually by most insurance companies. And even some insurance companies are not approving it for diabetes management. So you can see that there's a huge monetary barrier here too for getting access to this drug, which then creates this other narrative, which is so harmful and problematic of, well, why aren't you just taking this drug? Like if this can just quote unquote lead to weight loss, which by the way, there's a lot of holes in that, then why aren't you taking it? And for a lot of people, even the the monetary barrier is pretty significant. So to answer your question, yes, Ozempic, insofar as I understand, I haven't, I don't have exact numbers in front of me, is the most commonly prescribed one right now. There is Manjaro, there is Robalis, I believe it's pronounced. And then there's like 15, 20 on the pipeline. There are many, many more that are coming through for us to kind of watch out for. Yeah. And earlier you said that what we see in studies is very different than what we see actually happening. Mm -hmm. Can we break that down a little bit? Yeah. So when Novo Nordisk started doing trials on this, and usually when uh, pharmaceutical companies start doing trials, they did something called step trials, which is where each study, each step, but it's not a step in uh, secession. It's like step one was studying this population. Step two was studying this population. They had some pretty significant results in terms of weight loss outcomes, in terms of blood glucose outcomes, so much so that when it was then presented at different conferences, people are just kind of like blown away by the outcomes. But the interesting thing, and this is an important one, the exclusion criteria was pretty, pretty high in terms of who could participate in those studies and who could not. And so an important distinction is that when this drug now is being applied to the greater population of people, we're seeing it tested real time on people that it was never tested on. And what we're seeing too, is that the weight loss, for example, that people experience in the clinical trials is not happening, is not mimicked. We haven't seen that at all yet out in the world. Now, of course, there's always going to be exceptions to this, but generally we're not seeing the amount of body changes that people experience in the clinical trials out in the real world. And this is one of the areas that I have a lot of concern about because what I'm starting to see, and I suspect we'll see more of, is people are promised this shift and change. It, it's so similar to diets, just diet and lose X amount of weight. Now it's just take this medication, and lose X amount of weight, is that people aren't experiencing the same amount of weight loss. And so therefore, they are more susceptible to engaging in disordered behaviors in order to get to where maybe they hoped or want or to keep up with maybe the potential impacts of this drug. So engaging in, you know, disordered behaviors, even seeking out medication that maybe isn't approved or is harmful. And I have a lot of concern around that piece of things, not to mention that these drugs, very common side effects are similar ones to what we experience in eating disorders. And so very common side effect is nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, 
super, super, super common. A lot of people, even some of my clients who are taking this on label, meaning they're prescribed it for diabetes, are experiencing these symptoms. So that's super concerning as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because you have both from the side of like weight loss, dieting, disordered behaviors, and then the GI component comes in or like now we're like at like the risk factors for developing an eating disorder are starting to pile up real fast. Yes. Um, and like you said, like it's the same thing as diet culture where it's like you have it like we're making your body a problem. Your body's the issue. Here we have a diet now a pill for you. But I think the part that's really scary is that one, it's like medicalized. So I think for some people it feels more legit than a diet. And it's this idea of like the fast like reward of it. Like I think folks with dieting diets like and my people have heard me say that on the podcast many times diet sucks and like we're not informed to the consequences of dieting but it's more almost like I, I almost see it as like long term right because we like expect things to change slightly slower or we get through these cycles whereas like a medication is like it kind of intensifies and speeds up that process of okay, this is not working. We're week two. Okay, let's go. Like, let's like move on. Like, you know, like it, it kind of makes it, yeah, even more intensified in terms of like the expectations that we may have on ourselves and the intensity that we may even have on ourselves too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think about too, so as soon as someone stops taking the medication, their body will go back to where it was, no matter how much weight change they experienced. And the rhetoric or the, the discourse, if you will, that I've seen is like sometimes, oh, well, I'll just prescribe this. Let's say a doctor, prescribe, I'll just prescribe it until they get to X place. And that's not how it works. That's not how bodies work. And so this is only contributing to more weight cycling, people losing weight, gaining weight. And we know that that is very harmful. We have enough research at this yeah. point to know that weight cycling has a significant impact on our body. Not to mention that because these drugs are essentially telling our body that it's full with less food, I really worry from a physiological perspective and as a dietitian, the impact that this is having on people because they're essentially not getting enough food now. Just because a drug is kind of tricking your body into thinking that it might be more full doesn't mean that you now need less food. And this is being combined usually for a lot of people with the pursuit of diets or the pursuit of wellness programs. And so it's just a really... There's a lot of harm, I think, that can be done, which again, I'm not blaming the individual for the pursuit of this or taking it, but rather have a lot of concerns about these drugs. No, absolutely. And I think you said it well too, like this idea that like, just like a diet, it's only sustainable if you're on it for the rest of your life, right? Like it only works if, and works is like quote unquote, right? Like to whatever goal that they, they set, but like it you have to be on it forever. So like, if you look at it again, like the financial perspective of that, of like, are you willing to pay thousands of dollars every year? And like, it's an amount, a crazy amount of thing. And then also like, if you do stop, then then what happens? Um, and it's really interesting when you talked about this from the nutrition perspective of like one, like, are we creating nutrition deficiencies, like the impact on hormones, the impact on metabolism. And then like the body perceives it as a threat, right? Like any type of restriction, whether or not, like you said, quote unquote, we trick our body into believing we don't need food. Like the body still needs food. <laughs> like sure. No matter what we do, your body needs nourishment. So once we're off there, it's kind of like that impact of like, 
like threat response, right? And your body's only goal in life is to survive. Like that's legit. Our body's job is to make sure that we can be here on planet Earth. And it seems like something like this can be quite a big threat on the body. A hundred percent. It absolutely is. And people were starting to see reports of going off the medication and experiencing ravenous hunger and feeling out of control around food and increases of incidences of binge eating. Of course, that's exactly what we would expect because someone is assumingly not getting enough food with this drug, especially when it's being prescribed for weight loss. Now, there's a different impact when someone is taking this for diabetes management, which doesn't mean that it's always going to be the best option. There are uh, individuals who I've worked with with whom they've started to take the drug and it was too triggering for their own eating disorder recovery. So we've had to find out other options because of the side effects and because of some of the things that were happening. But nonetheless, of course, of course we would experience binge eating because we're not eating enough while we're taking this. And it just reinforces a new wave of anti-fatness, blaming people for their body size. And even with this drug, fat people will still exist. Like this doesn't, this, that it's not going to stop that. And yet the rhetoric around this is, oh, well, this is the quote unquote solution to fat people not existing, which is a horrible thing, a horrible thing to say, to talk about, to receive as a person in a larger body, to hear people saying, I look forward to the day when you don't exist anymore. Like it's pretty, pretty messed up. And so I worry to just like past weight loss drugs throughout history, especially because they usually happen fast and they're pushed out. The impact that it's having on people generally and especially on people in larger bodies. It's so like, like you're talking and I'm like, I feel like anger, sadness, like almost confusion. Like, why the fuck are we here in 2023? Like, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's wild. Do we have any studies on the risk, like either short term or long term of this drug? Or like, do we know any of the risks, risk slash benefits of these drugs? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So short term risks, some of the ones I mentioned, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, there's a new risk that I I believe the FDA put on the label of paralysis of the, I, I believe it's the stomach or the intestines. So it's just kind of freezing. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty, pretty alarming. We don't have long-term research on this, which is an issue. So we don't know the long-term impact of taking a drug like this. There is some question in rodent studies, from my understanding, there were some thyroid uh, tumors that developed. There's some things that we're discovering about pancreatic cancer potentially related to this, but we don't know. We don't know the long-term impact of taking drugs like this because we, it hasn't been out for very long. So there's some short-term risk, including but not limited to, and no one is putting this in there, but I feel confident in saying this, risk of the development of an eating disorder because yeah. this essentially primes someone. This to me is no different than somewhat, well, there are some differences, but nonetheless, going on a diet, which we know is a huge risk factor for the development yeah. of an eating yeah. disorder. And then you, you take into account you know, all the risk factors related to the development of eating disorder. So we'll learn more over time, but we're learning, which is the most horrible part. We're learning real time on humans, not in trials. Yeah. And for folks who are like, you guys are just talking about a negative side effect, but like, is there any benefits to it? Like, aside from the potential of weight loss, which is kind of like the promise of this drug, like, is there any benefits 
for those with diabetes, yeah, uh, blood glucose control. I mean, that's that's huge. Uh, increase in insulin production, also really significant. Control of glucagon, also really helpful. Like the effectiveness of it from diabetes blood glucose management perspective is really significant. There are some things that they are talking about in terms of potential cardiovascular improvements, preservation of beta cell function, which is where our insulin comes from. So there is some discussion and some people might hear this around the cardio, what they call cardioprotective benefits of Ozempic, but I don't know yet from a clinical perspective, if the benefits, quote unquote benefits of its cardioprotectiveness outweighs the harms of taking a drug like this. And are there any other things that we could be doing and engaging us in that are cardioprotective without having to take a drug that could have a lot of side effects. And we don't know long-term mm-hmm. the impact that this can have on folks. So I think that there could be some benefits for individuals. There's a lot of gastrointestinal side effects. And I just worry about the appetite suppression piece of things yeah. and the, nu- the lack of nutrient absorption and also just generally decrease in overall energy intake that can yeah. really be Absolutely. harmful. Absolutely. Okay, so... <laughs> We're both eating disorder dietitians, so I know that this question is going to get us all fired up because we're probably pretty upset about it. Um, but Ozempic is also used and prescribed to folks with binge eating disorder as part of the treatment. So can we talk about it? Like <laughs> the harms of it, why it doesn't fucking make sense and... Can we can we explore that topic together? <laughs> yeah, of course, they jump right to trying to prescribe a medication for the treatment of eating disorders. I mean, to start with, and your listeners might know this, and I know you know this, eating disorders are not a physical disorder. They are a mental illness. And so, and what contributes to an eating disorder are biological, psychological, and social factors. So this idea that taking a medication is going to quote unquote treat an eating disorder just it doesn't even make sense because there are so many things that are needing to be addressed in the treatment mm-hmm. of an eating disorder, as you know. Yeah. And when I say it's not a physical disorder, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have physical impacts. It just means that we can't treat the body to treat an eating disorder. We Absolutely. have to treat the brain and the mind. Absolutely. Binge eating is not a hunger issue, guys. Just like point blank. Like that's just what it is. Like it's not taking a medication to reduce appetite is not a fucking solution. No, no, it's not. It's very much a band-aid to a much larger issue. And I, I see it as another way, insofar as I understand, another way to capitalize on this drug to try to sell it even more. I think that it's harmful has not been approved for the treatment, by the way, at least in the US for the treatment of binge eating disorder or any eating disorder for that matter. Mm-hmm. This, to me, someone being prescribed this that has binge eating disorder, while we might see a potentially, we don't have any research behind this, a temporary cessation, cessation, I can't even say that word, a decrease in uh, binge eating behaviors, potentially the long-term impact of this would be that they would only increase, that someone would, their binge eating would increase, or we'd see a shift into a different eating disorder. I anticipate Mm -hmm. that folks maybe would begin to have symptoms of anorexia and then binge eating disorder would turn into which happens really commonly with eating disorders that folks go from one to the other. So it's really upsetting. And I've already had clients for whom have binge eating disorder and their doctors have started to prescribe this. 
And it's just, it's just being given out like candy. That's what the feeling is like, oh, this is harmless. And especially to folks in larger bodies, it's like, oh, you know, just take this. And also, oh, you have elevated cholesterol and also take this medication. And that's just not how the treatment of eating disorders uh, goes. Absolutely. And I think it's just another indication of like medical fat phobia and weight stigma that if you have binge eating disorder and you live in a larger body, the solution is like, let's try to fix your body. Like, let's let's try to do that. And then it's going to be better. And it's, again, like, so wrong because it's not true. But it then causes so much more harm and continues to perpetuate harm. I'm like, oh, that's yeah. a hard word, perpetuate yeah. harm. <laughs> um, so it just, it's just so sad. And I've had, I've had quite a lot of clients with binge eating disorder who were prescribed either um, Ozempic or Vyvanse. And it's the same thing, right? It's like, we're just trying to fix the symptoms. But to me, it's such a big lack of understanding about what binge eating is. And I think it's back to this piece of like, if if folks believe that it's like a hunger and satiety issue where it, it, it isn't, it absolutely isn't just like the other eating disorders. We, Yeah, I feel like this could be a podcast episode of its own. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a lot of misunderstandings. And look, like binge eating disorder is a relatively new diagnosis. We didn't even, well, I think we knew that it existed in certain degrees, but we are still learning more and more about binge eating disorder. And I think that because of that, a lot of clinicians in particular, not those who specialize in eating disorders, at least I hope not, are just like, oh, well, this is just a quote unquote problem with you, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. eating too much. Here's a drug to fix it and doesn't see it as a serious eating disorder that needs to be taken just as seriously as other eating disorders. And I think that that's in part why it's being prescribed so liberally because of people's lack of understanding because of their own anti-fatness, because of the assumptions that they make about people's behaviors and bodies, that they just see this as like, oh, this is, you know, this is great. This is a solution, quote unquote, mm-hmm. to your eating disorder when that's not true. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we could do a part two, three, and four. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here for it. I know, I'm Sleep, I'm for it. I feel like we could just talk about it like forever. Thank you so, so much for being here on the podcast. I'm curious if like folks who are listening, like if there's one thing maybe you would leave them with when it comes to maybe having critical thinking around Ozempic or just even checking with themselves in terms of if it's something that we want to do. I would say that ideally... Before anyone makes any decisions about taking this to consult with an anti-diet dietitian, ideally somebody that specializes in eating disorders, disordered eating, really arm oneself as best as possible with more information about this drug so that they can make an informed decision about taking this. Back to what we were saying before, I believe that people should have the autonomy to decide what medications that they take. And there are some serious side effects and the long-term impact of this, we don't really know right now. So get more than one opinion, seek out more than one person's medical advice around this and try to make a decision from that perspective. And this goes to, in the case of diabetes management, but also when it's prescribed for other reasons. Thank you so much for saying that. I think that's the, like, at the end of the day, like we all get to do what feels best for us. But I think the part that you said, and that is so beautiful, is just like, and having informed consent. Like, and I think that's the part that often can be missing, especially in diet culture, especially when like the carrot that's being dangled is weight loss. I feel like we almost, and even for, and I I can just think 
about myself, like being so focused on it that like sometimes I'm like, oh, it doesn't really matter. I'm like, I'm not even trying to look for the risk and understanding. So even giving ourselves that pause, right, of like, what if we kind of like pause, checked in, get the information that we do, and then can make a decision from that perspective. Yeah. Thank you so much again, Catherine, bringing up like guess This was so fun. So we'll go through our fun questions before we get going today. Okay. The first so one good. is, what is your favorite food? <laughs> Ah, uh, cheese. I love cheese so much. <laughs> is like a I could pick one that you like that you're like, this is my go-to cheese that I love. That's a great question. I, um, I'm such a cheese lover. I have a cheddar cheese. <laughs> it's very American, but I have it almost every day in my eggs. And I love soft, stinky cheeses too. Like give me a good, like blue cheese, the smellier, the better, but also like, you know, oh you God. open the fridge and it just comes through and I'm like, yes, that's, oh my that's God. the cheese I that I love. I cannot relate, but I love that for you. <laughs> so I love hard cheeses. I love soft cheeses. I love pungent cheeses. I love cheeses with different milks from different animals, you know, goat cheese versus like uh, cow cheese and everything with sheep's milk cheese. You give me cheese. My grandfather is from Holland. And so I was in part, I kind of contribute maybe a lot of this to maybe my background. I have no idea, but I'm like, I could eat cheese all the time. You're like all day, every day, let's go. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's a great source of protein, you know, and it's got calcium in it. Of course, my dietitian hat. I'm like, let's start talking more about cheese. It's a great, it's a great option. <laughs> I love that so much. Hashtag variety, all the yes. things we want it. Yes. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Definitely to learn a language by snapping my fingers. Ooh, that's the first one someone mentions on the podcast. I love it. Yeah, I love languages so much and I would love to be able to speak more. I speak Spanish and Italian and I you know, it's a process. It's a process to learn languages, but I'm like, oh, it'd be so great. Like I'm about to travel tomorrow and I could just be in Holland and snap my finger. And then all of a sudden I could speak Dutch or, yeah. you know, somewhere else in the world because I love connecting to humans. I love learning more about people's culture and food and life. And there's nothing like being able to learn the language to be able to get more of that in terms of, mm. you know, experiencing the world and other people. Oh, I love that so much. What is your favorite way of self-care? Definitely dance. So I do a lot of dance. I used to be on um, some performance dance teams for salsa. And right now I'm very into Afro dance, specifically I'm a piano from South Africa, as well as Afro beats from Nigeria. And the music, if anyone has ever heard of it, is amazing. It's fun. It's if you want energy and joy, definitely recommend listening to it. But I feel very different, both you know, when I don't go, I love the movement itself, but also the community part of dance. It's has a huge impact on my life and I feel it. I feel it. The absence of it when I'm not dancing because I'm missing my community. I'm missing the folks that, you know, I dance with. And it's just like a really joyful, pleasurable way to move my body. And that's a good thing seeing that I, you know, have a history of having a not so great relationship with like you know, formal exercise. And so I really do see it as a way of caring for myself. I love that. I love that. And what does balance mean to you? You know, I, I think that what I've learned, especially as a business owner, because it's been all consuming in different parts of the journey of my own business is that I have to be getting just as much fulfillment from my life outside of my work mm. and my business that I do from the work itself. And when I am too much in the work, when I'm spending too much time working or even 
thinking about recovery or uh, educating myself, I feel pretty off balance. I feel less connected to myself, to my own interest, to essentially who I am as a human, because I am not just a person who works. I'm not just a dietitian. And so I've had to work really hard in my own therapy and in my own life. And it will probably, you know, continue uh, throughout my life to try to also really be off and connect to other things that bring me joy, that bring me balance, that bring me connection to community that have nothing to do with the work that I do. Mm -hmm. That also allows my work, by the way, to be sustainable because I've been burnt out many times. So for me, balance is getting just as much fulfillment and support from my life outside of my work as I do with my work in business. Hmm, I love that. Like that has been my 2023 goal and it's absolutely an ongoing goal. It's hard when you're like, you love what you do so much and you're like, I'll just do more. But then you're like, wait, when I do more, I actually don't feel better. (laughs) Like just kind of like balancing all the things. I don't know if you feel like that, but I know I take a lot of like concepts and things I learned from my recovery to apply into. Yeah, it's crazy. I think we should do another podcast on like hustle culture versus diet culture. Oh, totally. Oh my God. There's so many overlaps. So many overlaps. So many overlaps. So many. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much again for being on the podcast. This was such a great conversation. I'm sure folks are going to absolutely love it. Where can people find you? Where can they work with you? Where can they get more of you? Yes. Great question. BraveSpaceNutrition.com is our website. There's everything that you could need there. I uh, work with clients one-on-one and you can also find me on Catherine Metzler at Catherine Metzler on Instagram. Our uh, practice also Brave Space Nutrition has an Instagram. I'm also on TikTok under Catherine Metzler. I'm also on YouTube under Catherine Metzler. So there's a lot of different ways that folks can connect with me. Also, I have a newsletter I send out every week called Dear Diet Culture. It's me Sunday, where I send tips and guidance and mm-hmm. um, all kinds of things related to healing your relationship with food and your body. So that's a really cool free way for folks to learn directly from me. And if anyone wants a free journaling calendar, um, so we've got that as a free resource on our website too, where every single month you essentially are given activities and journaling prompts to help support you in healing your relationship with food and your body. So that's a really cool resource that I worked on for a long time. And so people are like, ah, I need something else. I feel like it's a really good support, especially if folks are wanting to do this work and or if they're already working with a clinician and they're like, you know, I want a little bit extra here. That's a great resource too. I'll put all of that in the show notes so you guys can literally just scroll down and just like click on all the things and then get everything from Catherine because this is so, so good. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so wonderful. And yeah, I hope folks walk away feeling a lot more informed about these drugs uh, in the future. Ah, Friends, how are we feeling? I hope that you have enjoyed this conversation. I hope that as Catherine says, we feel more informed about it and we feel good about it and just maybe not good, but just more informed and being able to make a decision as we continue to move forward. As we were like wrapping up the podcast, Catherine and I were talking and something that we did not mention in the podcast, but wanted to make note here is also talking about, you know, when we talked about, we don't want people to feel shame if you are on Ozempic or have chosen Ozempic. This is not an individualized issue. This is more a systemic issue that we are facing. And We also wanted to name that for some folks, 
not having access to care may also lead them to relying on a drug like Ozempic. Like, for example, not being able to access surgeries or access fertility services, right? Like our system is so weight-centric and it also absolutely makes sense if it's a decision that we took based on being able to access care for other reasons. So again, the goal of this podcast was absolutely not to shame anyone for making decisions for themselves. I absolutely believe that we all get to do what we want to do. And I absolutely believe that we must have all of the information at play. We all grew up in diet culture, like every single one of us here listening to the podcast have grew up in this society that praises thinness and demonizes food. So it really makes sense to start questioning a little bit our beliefs and our belief system and our wants and our needs and our values before we make some of these really big decisions that may have impacts on our health. On that note, my friend, I cannot wait to hear your thoughts on this podcast. You can go on my Instagram at The Balanced Dietitian or at The Balanced Practice and comment on the latest post and let me know what your thoughts are. Do you have any follow-up question? Is there anything that we did not answer that you would like to know? All right, my friend, on that note, I'll catch you next week in the next episode. 